if I'm going to have a hitter for three years, I mean, gosh, man, I want to be able to hand him to a pro coordinator and this guy knows exactly who he is. And it, that might not be perfected yet, but it's going to be pretty close. Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner, and thank you so much for joining us. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. I also want to take a minute to say thank you. This will be my last podcast for the near future, and for the first time in over two years, there will not be an episode next Thursday. I'm so grateful for all of your support, and without a doubt, I wouldn't be blessed with the position that I have without this podcast and your support. God bless you guys, and best of luck in your seasons. On today's show, we get the pleasure of speaking with James Ramsey, hitting coach at Georgia Tech. Prior to beginning his coaching career, Ramsey was a standout outfielder at Florida State and was a first-round pick in 2012. In addition to making the All-Star MLB Futures game in 2014, Ramsey was just named to the D1 Baseball's All-Decade team for 2020 And in 2012, he won the Lowe's Senior Class Award, the first recipient of the award for any Seminole student athlete. In 2019, which was Ramsey's first year at the helm of the Yellow Jackets hitters, Georgia Tech led the ACC in hitting for average, finished second in run production, hits, and slugging, and finished third in home runs and walks. Tech blasted back on the national scene, winning 43 games and was the host of the 2019 Atlanta Regional. So on the show, we discuss what James did in such a short period of time. His hire got announced on February 7, 2019. And we also discuss run production, practice design, individualizing player approaches at the plate, and much, much more. You're going to love this episode. And here is James Ramsey. James, welcome to the show. JG, thanks for having me, man. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, we got the chance to sit down for a little while at the ABCA. Uh, thanks to a mutual friend and Kyle Wilson. And I'm so, so thankful that he introduced us because I'm so excited to get to learn from you today. And to be completely honest, I didn't know much about you or your background beforehand. And he he filled me in. I got to meet you and you're a perfect fit for the show. But for our listeners who you know would like to get a little bit about who you are how, or where you came from and, and where you're at today, do you mind giving us a short, short snapshot of your baseball background? And then why did you decide to get into coaching? Yeah, absolutely. No, I, uh, I've always listened to the show and, and feel like there's such great content going out there. And, you know, I know a lot of guys can relate to, you know, you get on this show and you feel really unqualified to be on the show, but obviously we're going to try to hammer it out and maybe there's some gold we can find somewhere in this short time we get to spend together. So for me, it was playing career was high school four sport athlete, um, was around a lot of great coaches, great mentors, decided to go down and play at Florida State where my mom played tennis. My dad was the captain on Coach Martin's old 11's first team um, back in 1980. And so, you know, got to go down there and and played four good years, turned down a good draft opportunity as a junior to go back and felt like I had some unfinished business, was campus president of two different organizations, uh, was doing speaking engagements faith-wise, and just felt like I wanted to continue to chase a ring. Ultimately, we got to Omaha again and held the top spot in the country um, that senior year and and being able to get picked by the St. Louis Cardinals in the first round in 2012. Uh, Jeff Albert was my first hitting coach in pro ball. And so I immediately just realized that, man, there's some great minds in pro ball. Um, had up until 2014, I uh, got traded at the deadline for Justin Masterson to go to the Cleveland Indians, spent just under two years there, was traded to the LA Dodgers traded later in 2016 to the Mariners, uh, had a fracture in my left elbow, uh, just a freak hitting injury, turned surgery, missed the year, signed with the Twins in free agency, and then jumped straight off a pro field to go coach with 11 in his final year at Florida State. And then mid-year, 
got the call from Danny Hall. And when you get a chance to coach under two of the top 15 winningest coaches all time, you kind of just say, Hey, when, when do you want me here? And so being back in my hometown of Atlanta, uh, first year at Georgia tech last year, couldn't ask for a better transition, uh, to go on and off the field. But for me, the foundation of why I got into coaching, you know, a little bit of a gospel plug here. It's my faith has kind of shaped me. It's molded me. It's the reason why I think I value relationships so deeply and to be able to use baseball as kind of the avenue to impact young men's lives. I think the college experience, I grew so much off the field, just as much as I developed on the field. And so to be back in that setting right now is where I feel like I can have the most amount of impact. No, I love that. And and was coaching something that you always thought of uh, while you were playing? I mean, you don't want to look too far ahead. Obviously, you had a really successful baseball career, but was it something that you had in the back of your mind in the process? It was always something that I was told I was going to do one day. I remember being eight years old and true story. I was putting on like a fake pump at shortstop uh, for guys when they would go from second to third and I'd end up tagging them out. Or I was always kind of coaching when I played, whether that was football, basketball, baseball, tennis, whatever it was in my playing career. And I do love being around people and I love to compete. And so those reasons I'm finding out more and more. And once again, being a man of faith, knowing of... at times it was hard for me to, I'm going from this organization to that organization. I've been the top prospect. Now I've been the the guy that's kind of having to just grind for every at bat he can get in the ninth inning of a six run game. So I kind of felt like I didn't know at the time what I was being shaped for with a finance degree, real estate, you know, in the honors program in college. I, I didn't always know that's where I'd be. I would tell you at age 17, I wanted to be in the front office one day reading Moneyball took an official visit even to uh, Yale, open the Ivy League, using my education to kind of leverage me and help change the trajectory of my life. Um, But I think that's the one thing of once I'm in coaching now, couldn't be happier. It's fulfilling. It's tough work. But as you you can relate, you know, you get to kind of see the the fruit at the end of the journey and say, man, you know, this is a this is worth those 14, 15 hour days. This is worth the being on call kind of 24 seven. Absolutely. And and sometimes we, you know, they talk about the story of watering the bamboo. And I think, you know, that's, that's kind of, that's kind of where we are as coaches is sometimes we don't see the impact that we make until 20 years from now. And I, I'm, I'm firmly entrenched in that field and, or in that, in that thought process. And you had me intrigued. Obviously you've coached under two of the most successful coaches in the history of college baseball. Can you throw out just maybe a couple things that you learned or just some life lessons or just anything that stands out to when you're like, man, this is something that I learned from 11, or this is something that I learned from Danny. And I'll always remember that. What are a couple of those things? Yeah. So first off, I mean, they're good friends. They're, you know, they, they play golf together at the old ACC coaches conferences. And so I think that they have a lot of similarities, but yet I do think they go about their business kind of differently. I think that, um, the thing that I always kind of take from coach Martin is people are always like, well, how, how did 11 win 40 games for 40 years? And, you know, he wasn't reading talent code by Dan Coyle. He wasn't, you know, looking at deep practice and and all those kind of things, but everything that he did and Mike Martin Jr. falls into this as well. Everything they do is deep practice oriented. So the decision drills they have, the reasons why they walk more than they strike out and they do all those things is because they do have their own set. Maybe they don't quantify it at all times. And that was something that 11 would be the first to tell you. We had conversations about vertical bat angle with an umbrella in his office. And he just kind of chuckled. And he's like, I'm glad I'm getting out when I am because I still am not. I'm not hearing you, even though I understand what you're trying to say. And then as far as Coach Hall goes, I think that he has such an amazing coaching tree. And the the thing that I've learned that that I know I need more of in my life is he gives a lot of responsibility to guys, even when he knows he can run a program head to toe. I mean, he recruited Hall of Famers like Barry Larkin and coached them. You know, he had the Nomars, the Teixeiras, the Weeders, um, you know, Charlie Blackman. I mean, he goes on and on and on. I mean, the guy has a coaching uh, lineage as well as a coaching tree that you see so many D1 coaches. Uh, it's because he lets them do their thing. And I think that you know, at any point he could, he could probably pull me aside and and sometimes he does and say, Hey, we're, maybe we're trying to reinvent the wheel here. Or I know I said, I wanted you to run it this way, but maybe let's try this. I'm always kind of step back and go, man, well, maybe my first instinct would be to run the drill, but for him, he allows guys to grow. And, you know, I'm forever grateful for that to step in as a first year college coach and kind of be able to control some of the things that we did in our 
practices and, you know, I'll try to not use too many podcast buzzwords like environments and constraints and all that stuff. But I do think that it's important to, you know, kind of hit at some of the the heart of what makes you um, successful and what's made both of those guys to be really good coaches. Oh, fantastic. And so last year you uh, was your first year at Georgia Tech and I, I, I'm a huge proponent of reflection just because I, I think that that's how, that's how we grow every year. We, we look back to see what we did well. We look back to see what we didn't do well, and then we can either add to it, take it away. And uh, again, it's just, just, just a way of thinking on, on my mindset, but you transitioned from FSU to Georgia Tech and it was, was it during the middle, like during semester? That's correct. Okay, so you didn't have a lot of time to work with these guys, and you guys had an extremely, extremely great offensive season. So tell us about, okay, so I'm, I'm just thinking to myself, I'm freaking out, like anxious thoughts. Okay, what the heck am I going to do in January with these guys? And then you guys had a really good season. Tell us what, what you did going into it, what your mindset was, what, you know, I guess you could say your first 100 days, what did you plan on doing, especially whenever you're getting there so late. So just tell us and walk us through that process a little bit. Yeah, no, I think that the the big thing was uh, I've always tried to be a sponge. And so whether I was playing and I'm in big league camp and I'm, you know, I am starting in games where, you know, you're playing against Mike Trout and you're facing Zach Grinke or Clayton Kershaw, but you're also hitting in the middle of a lineup with Michael Brantley and Jason Kipnis. And you play with Francisco Lindor multiple years. Um, I always try to just say, hey, man, if the shoe fits, uh, I can get an advantage from one of these guys or just hear them out because there's so many different ways that guys find their own excellence. And so I always tried to just do that. And the one thing I will say is I am, uh, I love to read and it's baseball, it's mental toughness, it's corporate culture books. I think that, you know, baseball has a lot to learn from, you know, some other areas, but I did read a, you know, I was reading kind of a leadership book at the time of, you know, how to lead when you're not in charge basically. And it's, if you can be a good steward with, what you're given. And so as the volunteer assistant for three and a half months, there was only so much that I could do. But if I could think of it as a recruiting coordinator, if I could think of it as a hitting coach or running base running drills or whatever it was, now I don't want to just say, because I think there's a lot of coaches out there that, and I can relate, you want to be that next guy. You want to be the head coach or you want to be the recruiting coordinator or the hitting coach or the you know big league hitting coach. And you're kind of stuck where you're at. Um, and I think you wait for the title or you wait for the opportunity to make a practice plan instead of kind of going after those things and, and being, you know, listening first, but also making sure that when someone looks to the right or left in the middle of a chaotic drill, you have an answer, you have a plan for, man, how would I run this? And it's not that you would think of it as a better way to do it, but if there's a different way to do something, curiosity is such a big thing for me that I try to have an interactive practice with players and game planning is interactive with our staff that, you know, it's, it's so many times we we have these resources next to us, but we're not really ready um, when our time comes. So I think that's the thing that I would would challenge other people with and, and felt like I, in no way was I perfect at this, but I was trying to kind of, you know, even if it's just dressing, dressing for the job you want, right? The old adages of just making sure that I was ready for the call. Um, now, shifting gears to actually on the field nuts and bolts, it, it made me strip down my practice plans. It made me strip down kind of all my goals and just make sure if I have the one or two highest leverage things that I want this team to get better at. And so it was taking a dive into not just our average, but some of the WOBA numbers from the year before. It was some who was creating runs and who was missing out on opportunity to create runs. And then defensively, how could we prevent runs? Um, And so that kind of allowed me to get a little bit of street cred because when I talked to guys that I knew were untapped, just monsters, you go up to them like, well, I hit the high pitch. And I'm like, well, no, I don't really think you do. And they're like, well, yeah, I do. I, here, I can show you this bomb I hit against so-and-so. And I'm like, well, that's great. But the other 17 times you swung at it, you had eight flyouts to the infield and nine swing and misses. So, right. um, you know, how did that work out for you? And just being able to kind of relate off the field too as well. Um, I think telling the players, I don't know what I don't know. And I'm new to this as well. And I'm going to make mistakes, but I'm going to make them aggressively. I think those were some of the things that guys felt like were genuine. And, uh, but I think that's one thing too, because I think we always, like, I know you can relate another coach, you, like you're avid, you know, you're reading, you're saying, oh man, I need to implement this principle. And then you're like, or do I not? Or do I need to kind of take it two steps backwards first and really make sure that the guys have kind of taken ownership before we go on to the next subject? 
So now you've had your first off season with these guys. So you gained your street cred. Now you're getting to know those guys really well. And so what did what did this off season look like for you? I mean, again, you've got more time than you do in January to be able to to work on, let's just say, mechanics or just things that you wouldn't want to try and fix during the middle of the season. So give us a give us a, a bird's eye view of what this fall looked like for you. Yeah, so we actually had a really talented young recruiting class come in, several guys that, you know, turned down the draft in one way or another. And so roster construction was totally different. I would have loved to work with the same hitters again because I really think we could have even done a lot better in certain areas. But it kind of is in college, just like in pro ball, you know, you've got a recycling roster at all times. So that's where I was challenged with, okay, what would I have done with last year's team in the spring? I can't just bring that to this fall because there's so many new faces and maybe I need to do addition before I do multiplication or algebra or calc, you know, with this next group, I think that it was important too to just make sure, okay, we do want some more individual player plans. We do want to make sure that guys are getting what they need. They're using some movement screens, you know, getting KVEST certified was really helpful in just identifying the type of mover I have, but also just making sure that we're keeping the most important things uh, the most important as far as are we spending the amount of time on the things that are most important to us. So bird's eye view, I mean, you're going to see a lot of the same that you did see in the spring. Um, but at the same time, there was a little more of just making BP groups differently to make sure that, you know, you've got rotations where guys go to the cage and whether it's wasted time or maybe it's time that just could be used better. They need to make sure that they're hitting with a guy. Mike Matheny always used the term of like having a mirror for you. And that's the player that on the field, off the field is an accountability partner. So making sure, Hey, am I keeping those guys in the same BP group, especially if they've got the same attack angle deficiency, or they've got the same, you know, lack of barrel awareness so that they're doing drills when I'm with them, but also when I'm not with them, that's going to prepare them uh, for success down the road. So do you have like a couple of because because I'm I'm listening to this going man this is this is awesome stuff and I I tried for many years to be able to do things like that and I think I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you said you had to strip down and really simplify and make uh and just make sure that your system was integrated on the absolutes or what you believe are the absolutes and so are there are there any you you mentioned attack angle but are there any like set okay these guys or these guys have a bad attack angle, so that's where we're going to start. Or these guys uh, need to start with barrel awareness. So you mentioned those two things, but are there any are there any like set five or set seven of things that you're looking for, and you're grouping those guys together based on that? Does that make sense? No, it does. I think that, and once again, I made mistakes all the time. Of uh, you know, there'd be certain times where. I uh, have a hitters, you know, real quick meeting to kind of set the day after stretch, for instance. And I found myself too many times, and this was not being organized enough on who's th- which two A guys throwing a pen. Do the catchers need to be ready to go, or can they stay and go through base running rotation today? And so it's I kind of took my lumps sometimes where I would kind of you know joke around with with pitching coach and kind of throw your hands up with Burrell and be like, hey man, like you know. But I I had to look internally. Could I do it better? So I I did. Six BP groups, laminated them, stuck them out there so I didn't have to take the time on the day-to-day to do it. And so some of them are grouped by righties versus lefties. As basic as that sounds, can we throw a, you know, a different angle on the machine or a different pitch on the machine for righties that we do lefties? Then I would do one more, which guys are gap-to-gap guys? And once again, I'm thinking of it of, of launch angle techniques, external focus on how I can get those guys to be better. I don't necessarily want them thinking, hey, I'm the launch angle group, I'm the exit velo group, I'm the barrel awareness group, or I'm the whatever that deficiency is, I'm the pitch recognition group. But they end up coupling themselves into those groups. Most of the time, I like it subconscious. So then when that group gets down to the cage or to the turtle behind the field, they I can lay it out for them uh, more times than not. And so I think that's a way that I've been able to do it. Um, and that's where I want guys to know what they need to do to get better. But I personally have found and read most of the guys that I follow are not big internal teachers. And so that goes back to my inner game of tennis days, reading that, talking about, you know, just decision-making and judgments. And anytime that you start thinking about it, when you're in not the construction zone, but the competition zone, results are going to go down if you're thinking internally. So anytime that I could kill two birds with one stone, like I can get BP groups designed 
and it'll save me time. But also each day, by the time I decide, I've just got them one through six, but the players may not know which groups those are. Um, and one thing I've done too, I did one by GPA, which may sound really surface level, but it's amazing how you see, okay, my scene guys solve problems different ways or, or, and sometimes, you know, we all know the best hitters, they don't think at all. And then you've got the, you know, engineering majors that are, uh, you know, super cerebral and they know their angles and all that stuff. They just need to just hit the ball off the L screen, the top of the L screen that is, you know? So I think that it's always a balance and, and I, I don't claim to have the right way to do it just yet, but I have found if I get out in front of it enough, then if nothing else, I can fall into, okay, this is the group that needs to go gap to gap. This is the group that needs to maybe bunt base hit wise a little bit as part of their BP. And I'm not just killing somebody else's round and messing with the flow when I got three guys that I just want to smash balls off the center field wall um, that I'm not kind of, I have clarity. That's the one thing I always try to search for is, like yeah. No, I love, I love that. I love clarity. Uh, I think simple wins. And I think you mentioned earlier that, that we're getting into, there's so much information that how do we, how do we filter that and, and pick out what we can actually use and what, what's just white noise. And I, I really, I, I love that. And, and so this, this off season, if you had to boil it down to what you guys were really, really focused on, maybe it could be a word or maybe it could be, you know, we needed to work on these things or how do you, me- I guess, how do you measure success with the off season and uh, for you guys? Yeah, I think Coach Hall has an unbelievable track record of having individuals get better, their individual development. We've had, you know, one of the top programs in the country of putting major league guys uh, into the league, but also guys that have an impact. So I think you have, you do have to focus on individual skill development, but that's the one thing that we also can't forget that instincts at our level and teaching makeup and, and where to throw the ball and when to throw the ball there. These guys have grown up in a showcase setting where they've never, some of them have never had a first and third play, you know, put on, let alone, uh, you know, understand when that time is to take a gamble of stealing a base versus the time to be uh, conservative and let a guy hit. And I think the more education we can do, and I pull from any resource I can on run probabilities and, and just anything to just say, Hey guys, this is the time that, and so I think instincts was one for this young team this year was we had some veteran leaders that I could go three steps ahead, but I do think that we were just trying to make sure these guys are playing the game instinctually. They're in tune with the way that we want it done. So by the time spring comes and we look to put something on, or we don't look to put something on there, they already know, man, I've got a very clear plan for what I'm trying to do. I mean, there's no interruptions uh, when we go to just compete our tails off every time we take the field. I love that. I, I love, obviously, you're huge on run produ- production and prevention, which, I mean, we when we score more runs than the other team, that usually means that we win. I think the math checks out on that. You'll have to... It plays. To yeah, it plays. <laughs> <laughs> so you had a lot of guys that were new this year that you mentioned. And so you you obviously recruited a lot of those guys, if not all of them. I guess you are the recruiting coordinator, so you did. But whenever they get to campus, where do you start? Like what, what are those conversations look like, especially most of the guys that you recruit, they have, they probably have a lot of things that you like. That's why you offer them, but they also have things that you, that you see over time that they need to fix. So what do those conversations look like? Uh, Take us through, you know, what a hitting meeting in the fall would look like for somebody that's new. And then just really, where do you start? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I think that, you know, and some of the guys that I didn't commit or whatnot. My predecessors did a really good job of doing that. So, you know, just want to make sure that fail to mention. And that's the one thing too, man, if we can find a kid that um, if we can have staff consensus on things, it, especially at our level, I feel like in pro ball, I mean, I had so many times where managers old school, whatever that means, right. We kind of throw that out there, but managers a little bit one way hitting coaches one way, his boss, the coordinator is a totally different way. And guys see that. And I, I, it was important for me to come in and make sure that, um, I had my own thoughts on where our culture needed to be, but so that was one thing too, that I think our staff, I've tried to be really intentional about just getting us together, We're reading a book together in the spring. Um, it's something that hopefully we can just, if nothing else, spend a little more intentional time together on bus rides or whatever, just kind of having good back and forth. But as far as the team's concerned, you know, doing, doing self-evaluations, doing evaluations on the coaching staff, um, I wanted to make sure, Hey, Am I communicating this clearly? And and I heard it really well said that 
there was an athletic director that gave surveys to student athletes, not always the full team, but guys that he trusted or, uh, you know, girls he trusted and said, I don't, I don't care about the X's and O's rate their relationship off the field. And I was like, man, that's awesome. I know, you know, I hit on it quickly, but I, I do think that there's so much good information out there that we might be able to find buzzwords or may, may be able to think that we can get to student athletes, but until we really break that wall down. Um, so for me, so much of it is getting to know, man, like this, the left-handed hitter hits lefties because his dad was left-handed and he threw BP to him in the backyard for 10 years. There's, we can overthink it sometimes too. So it's, can I just get fundamentally, where did this kid come from? What is his style of learning? What's his style of coaching? Um, what's his motivation style that he likes? Is, is he a guy that is all positive or does he want a guy that's a little more on him? I don't think that, I don't think as a coach that there's a problem being able to motivate different ways. You need to be true to yourself. But I also think that if you know a guy, he wants you to tell him his locker's dirty because he needs to get the little things done before he gets out to the field. There's other guys that just want to make sure, okay, you know, I know where my blind spots are. I just need you to help push me through because so many hitters, you know, high ranked recruits or all, all conference performers, we've all been around those guys that have zero confidence. You're like, how are you mad about where your swing's at? You're hitting 300, right? So um, I think it's just making sure that you connect with the guys on a personal level. Um, as cliche as that sounds, I think that, you know, it gets overlooked if we, oh man, this kid's going to trust me just because I know technology or I know stuff. It just makes sure that, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna measure you. I'm going to remeasure you. All those things are important, but also I'm invested in you. I want you to become a better leader. I want your 2-9 to become a 3-0 because now you can be on the all-conference team. And whether you care about it now or not, I promise you, and you're a dad, you're a husband, whatever it is, you're going to look back and say, man, I squeezed every ounce out of every opportunity I was given. And, uh, you know, just to be able to bring some awareness to guys that they need to be doing community service and all that. Um, to me, that starts before we start talking about some of the hitting assessments, but all that stuff is, is important. No, I love it. And you said that you really enjoy the mental side and you really enjoy reading about that stuff. And that could go a lot of different directions. And one of the things that, that I really that I'm, I'm trying to get better at is uh, helping guys have a plan and an approach. And especially in the time that, that we're in, and, and those can mean two completely separate things. Those can mean the same thing. And, and you could argue one way or another, but whenever you've got, especially whenever you hopped in in January of last year and you didn't know those guys very well, uh, you've gotten a year under your belt to get to know a lot of these guys. Whenever we're discussing a plan and approach and mentality, what is, what does that mean to you in short? I think it's, I really do think there's multi-layers to it. So I think that, you know, sometimes guys are better at individual approaches like, Hey, I'm really good at getting a player to buy into this is what they need to do. I think there's other guys that buy into, you know, making sure that the nine or 12 guys that are going to be regularly in the lineup, they have a similar team approach. Um, you know, I think that's one thing that it does differ from person to person. I think at the college level, it does need to slant a little more towards, okay, this guy knows what he needs to do, but how many times in pro ball, I remember hitting behind a guy that first sw- first pitch swing percentage. And yeah, this was how I was as a player, I guess, how I knew I was going to be a coach. You know, you go and ask an analyst, what's this dude swinging? Because I swear it feels like it's 80% of the time there's action on the first pitch. And that does not help me when I'm going up to the plate. And I was always a pit plate pitches per plate appearance guy and a mm-hmm. sabermetric guy that had value. But I can promise you that year, I did not have nearly as much of an impact solely because the guy in front of me was affecting it. Now I could have done a better job of compartmentalizing or or realizing it earlier that I needed to jump on a first pitch as well. But I think once you kind of, you learn your team, you can't just, I, I found that, you know, you can't just cookie cutter a team approach year to year as well. I think that if you run well, you need to make sure that guys are all kind of following an approach that, that plays for guys that are going to be, you know, running early in counts, for instance. Or if you have a team that guys are going to be hitting 3-0 homers and five of your guys had green lights 3-0, you know, you're going to, you really don't need to be running into too many outs on the base path. So I think that's the thing that I've always tried to do is, and once again, that's why I have an interactive, if a pitching coach sometimes, that's the best thing. They come up to you and go, man, I've been pitching this guy in inner squads. Here's what I'm seeing. And I'm, I'm thinking, man, I've been on a totally different wavelength with him, but now it makes total sense. Um, Cause some pitchers I always roomed with in pro ball, some of them were the, the guys that helped me the most. Cause they're like, 
whether it was for me or for other hitters, hey man, did you see this guy? He's just he's going to get his swing off first two pitches. So now all of a sudden, you know, we can shift a guy differently, or we can play him a little bit differently. Or as a hitter, you know, the more stubborn you can be, if you're going to get out, get out on your own terms. I remember watching Manny Ramirez on a Sunday night baseball when I was probably in high school. Strikes out looking on a slider, puts his, you know, he's like smiling, which I could never understand. You're striking out and you're smiling, but that was the confidence he had knowing that his game plan was this at bat, I'm giving up this pitch, this part of the plate later on in the game, you know, like he always did, whether he baited guys or not, it's a whole different discussion, but goes and hits a home run on a similar pitch. So like Manny went down his way and and learned to play the percentages too many times you know, I know early in my career, you black out when you're walking back to the dugout. That's never a good feeling because you're like, man, I, I just wasn't present enough in my approach. I didn't trust that it was a good enough approach uh, to stay with it. Because that's the thing, you know, and pro ball was so great is you have so many at bats, stay with an approach and you may need to change your approach. But in college, you know, you almost have to stay with a with an approach for a large part of the season to get the right sample size. Um, because the game will tell you really how good your process is. That's one thing that Mike Schilt was a manager of mine most of my time with the Cardinals. Such a process-oriented guy. I've tried to make sure that, I mean, that guy did as much homework as anyone could possibly do as a minor league manager. So it's showing at the big league level now that he has access to more information. But if you can live with your process, you sleep easier at night. You don't think, should I have sent this guy? Should I not have pinch hit this guy? You've done your prep. You sleep easier knowing, hey, I've communicated it clearly. I could always be better, but these guys were confident when they stepped in the box. Um, and so now you can kind of live with the results a little bit more. Well, that's fantastic. And again, I love getting to hear because you could ask 100 different coaches that same question and get 100 different responses. And so I, I, I love that you ended with confidence too, because if we're not stepping into the box with confidence uh, in whatever that we're doing, then then we're not prepared, we're not ready to go. And, and the pitchers already have enough of, of an advantage uh, going into it. So that's, that's at least something that we can, that we can do. Uh, another thing that I really like is competition. And just, just because there's so many good things for us mentally, and it, it just frees up some space to just be a kid again a lot of different times. And and at the end of the day, we're all competing for something, right? We're competing for a job. We're competing for against the pitcher. Uh, we're comp- competing for playing time if you're not playing every single day. And so are there any different competitions that you guys like that you've done in practice? It could be, you know, you mentioned even GPA, uh, just any different competitions that you guys have had as a program in general that you really liked. I think it all is old school. The stuff that works for us the best, at least I know I can speak from my experiences, it's just letting guys pick teams so many times because, you know, so many times you got the player that's on the fringe of starting lineup where he's on the fringe, you know, and he hasn't taken pride in, let's say, defense or base running. When we when we have guys pick teams, it's like, you know, the kickball in middle school. Like you get picked last in kickball, you start being like, I need to get my act together because I don't like that feeling of being picked last. And so many times I've found that guy has a great day and if we're going first to third, and then that's the time you pull him to the side and go, hey, man, you know, you know what got into him, but you kind of ask him anyways, right? And it's like they don't like their teammates having that opinion that I don't want this guy or I, or I do want this guy. Sometimes guys are surprised we pick teams for an inner squad, shoot, two weeks before our season starts, which would probably be the time the coaches would want to make sure so-and-so is getting there at bats or, you know, this utility infielder, we're making sure he's making moves all around the infield. We just kind of decided – in a conversation of, Hey, we want to let these guys pick teams. Cause the energy was, we're in those dog days of training and couldn't have been more excited about the results. We got the pitchers got into it. You know, you need to have pitchers chirping during practice in a healthy manner, position players competing. So I think the more times that I kind of give them the reins, whether it's leaders on the team or it's guys that are, you know, they're really good program guys, but they're not hitting three, four in your lineup. Uh, you know, it's throwing that guy a bone. Hey man, you pick the teams today. You and so-and-so pick the teams. And it, like I said, it's not always just a hitting setting. It's, Hey, who do you want on the base running? If we're going to do bunts today and we're going to make sure we're doing base hit bunts and we're doing kind of a, a point system, but that's once again, cause as coaches, we try to make sure we communicating clearly. And so many times the immature player, which we all have been, you don't really have a good self-evaluation, self-awareness of what you need to get better at, but you'll learn pretty quick because guys don't like um, being picked last and stuff. So that's that's a kind of a quick way that we've had some success with. 
Oh, definitely. I I was whenever I played at uh, South Mountain Community College in Phoenix, our head coach who just won a 600 600th game was getting frustrated with some of the lack of uh, competitiveness that we were having and uh, I don't remember what what caused it, but he had he had everybody fill out a survey and filled out the starting nine and the lineup and that was what we went for for like, you know, uh, maybe a week. And so the guys that didn't get to play as much as they wanted to it wasn't on the coaches anymore so they really had to self-reflect and and that goes back to what you're saying and and i actually did that whenever i was a jv coach for a couple of years and it really it had an impact on the guys who thought that they were better than they were but at the end of the day your teammates know like they they know who's who's putting in the work they know who can play and and so it was it's it's really interesting uh to see that and and to see you know how that how that affects them psychologically and whether it kicks them in the butt or or not but Another thing that we're needing to do this time of year is just be at, make practice as as game like as possible, right? We're getting them ready to play games, and by the time this airs, you guys are probably about two weeks in. But what are some different ways that you really like to train uh, game like practices, and especially on a hitting side, how do we train as much adjustability in the swing as we can? Yeah, it's it's really good to learn from other people because I know that some of the drills like velocity machine when I played, I had to kind of I definitely went through that growing curve of hate it, hate it, mm-hmm. almost want to shut down. But it's that sweet spot of, you know, I think that's one thing we do is and this is not uncommon, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but is machine work. It's heavy velocity. It's it's good breaking balls. It's matching the spin and profiles of a guy that you're going to face this weekend. Um, nothing can replicate. Uh, standing in the box and stuff. And so we try to be as intentional as we can. Hey, if we've only got three innings today, we need to load the bases up a little bit. Pitchers, we need to stress them out a little bit. Or hitting wise, hey, do we want to make sure that even if a guy does get a hit, we're going to start a guy that may not be a base runner to try to create maybe even just an adverse situation for the defense, or we're going to get a guy thrown out on the bases and then guys are going to go, dang, why'd you run that guy? It's like, well, in a game, it's not going to be perfect. And would you rather him make an aggressive mistake and now we or are you guys like hey man i hit hit with the four hole open i didn't realize how much i like hitting with guys on base until you took them away and now i've got to you know we've got to create a run with nobody on base so i think that you know those are the ways we're always looking for ways to do it in a time limited sport but um you know the whether it's a coach pitch game that will mix even if it's just adding and subtracting off of a fastball you'll you'll be surprised you take that cage the turtle away behind the plate it's like that home run derby effect. Guys start just missing pitches, even at slower velocities. And it's just trying to train them of, listen, man, it's not always perfect. Three balls off the plate is a strike some nights. So that's one thing too, that, you know, if I'm calling balls and strikes, we usually have track man mirrored on the scoreboard, but mm-hmm. I love just own one. Yeah. Okay. And then some guys look at you like you just completely uh, crushed my bat. And I'm like, no, I did not. That's the, something an umpire is going to do. And you have two more strikes left or, you know, it's kind of challenging a guy and seeing the growth of as soon as that guy's, you know, you own one and then you see a guy dig in uh, doesn't affect me. That's the way that I think all of our teams want to have that identity for us. We use the word grit and, you know, we try to use the right principles of it, but it's got a good branding with a G and a T in it as well. But it's just making sure that we have that kind of relentlessness that, that it takes to play this game because, all of us slump and all of us are going to go through series where we score two runs in three games or score 30 runs and give up 29. And, but can we maximize wins when we can get them? Oh, fantastic. And uh, earlier in the show, you also mentioned that 11 and, uh, and I guess whenever you were there, I don't know if it was whenever you were a player, whenever you were a coach, but you said that they liked to train uh, decisions and that they, you know, you, you mentioned the talent code and they weren't, they weren't, uh, reading that, but they were very intentional about some of the things that they were doing. Did you happen to steal any of that stuff? Because I, I really think that in the age that we're in, as good of pitchers as we're seeing on a daily basis, I mean, and it's only it's only going to get harder and harder the harder that they're throwing and the more curveball or the more off-speed pitches that they're throwing. But what are some different ways that we can train better decisions in practice so that it shows up in a game? Yeah, I definitely think you you try to find, hey, this they, they did this really well here. So we're not going to be Florida State at Georgia Tech, and we're not going to be the Cardinals or Indians, Dodgers, Mariners, Twins. We're not going to be any of those teams, but we can be a good combination of them. I think the 
the, the less we can swing and miss, there's value, the less we can expand the zone, but also the tougher we can be expanding the zone in the right parts of the zone when we need to. I think that, you know, I go back to old school pepper, you know, you can't play it at youth parks across America anymore, liability stuff, but like old school pepper type drills of, I mean, how, how many times, and this goes back to the whole, can you create the type of place where whether you're a teacher, you're a coach, whatever you do, you're an office manager. If the, I always use the word, the aroma, if you've got a good aroma around your program, the good smell of when guys come to practice, they're like, this is going to be the best three or four hours or two hours or 30 minutes of my day. There's whether it's music, whether you're setting the atmosphere that way, whether guys get to take hold of parts of practice. But I think we we're in the backyard with our dad, brother, you wanted to, guys to throw it harder when you're playing lift ball, strike me out, right? You wanted to, Hey, make it harder. And then now when you show up to college campuses or, or pro atmospheres now, you see guys that they they shut down quicker instead of saying, you know, hey man, you're the same guy that was at the playground wanting the machine to throw harder. You wanted the, you know, the player to be tougher on you. And so I think once guys kind of realize that, you know, it's the same competitive mindset. So like if I'm just if I bring the L screen up and I'm just throwing cheese that day and I'm adding and subtracting, I mean, my differentials are going to be 30 miles an hour off when I'm doing that. And being okay with that's not every day because guys will get jumpy or they'll, you know, they'll shut down on you. But it's like, hey, man, today, why not? Why would we not push you like crazy? And then, you know, I I do think that you find that sweet spot of success and failure of making the last shot before you leave the gym type mentality of, yeah, I'm going to feed you a couple at the end. And maybe you tell them that, maybe you don't, but just get them to embrace kind of the struggle of, I'm going to break some off from this distance. And if you're in the if you're in a three one count or you're in a three two count, you need to approach it differently. But I think guys that um, I use it kind of like the lane analogy. If like you go too far out of your lane from a three zero count to a three two count, I've never seen that work from the guys that are the best at their craft. Um, the guys with the best two strike approaches usually have the best no strike approaches. And so, if we can kind of refine that so that guys don't feel like whether that's physical or or, or mental. I think there's only so much a guy can adjust pitch to pitch. And so can we just make sure that we have a really good foundation? And then, you know, once again, when the the storm comes or the, you know, the drought comes, we're able to kind of stay closer in line with uh, it's kind of our North star is what I like to call it. So whenever you're going over, you know, two strike approach, which seems to be, you know, a, a popular coach's buzzword. Uh, I mean, what, what does that look like whenever you're talking with the players? Because you, you've gotten me intrigued. You, you mentioned it, and then you talked about not, not really adjusting from your lane very often. So tell us more about that. Can you go a little bit more in depth with that? Yeah, uh, sure I can. I, I think that you know, every pitch a pitcher is forced to throw, I believe that there's probably a pretty good correlation to winning a game, right? It's kind of like possessions in basketball or football or whatever. The more that you can be on the offensive, the better. And so we've all had that hitter that, shoot, man, this guy's not going to be the one that breaks the game open, but they're going to be the guy that that makes me come out of a game and inning earlier. And then now you have to face a different pitcher because a guy that you did not scout for, you did not circle and star that guy made your life really tough. And that might mean swinging first pitch. That might mean, you know, doing something, taking a pitch every now and again. Um, You know, I don't like putting handcuffs on guys at all because I think that that's kind of artificial as far as the long-term approach. And if if I'm going to have a hitter for three years, I mean, gosh, man, I want to be able to hand him to a pro coordinator and this guy knows exactly who he is. And that might not be perfected yet, but it's going to be pretty close. But I want to make sure that you know, this hitter is the best version of themselves. And so I think a lot does go into that. Definitely. Definitely. And, uh, in the position that you're in, you are, you are tasked with not only winning games, but helping those players be their best selves, like you just mentioned. So how do you prioritize the individual development aspect within the team setting? I think you have to make sure that they have stuff that they are going to want to do on their own. I think that, you know, this is one thing where just honestly with our schedule, you can't spend X amount of time with guys. You got to make sure that, you know, our core time is spent in a team setting. And so if it's a posture drill, if it's hitter activation, it's making sure that 
you know, if they want to go in the weight room before practice starts and do, you know, some, I call them like TRX ripstick, like slap shots, right? Like it's all side bend transition. It's, it's using the good stuff, but if I can spin it as a, maybe even just a core exercise or whatever, and a guy has done 12 reps when no one's around of proper hinge and side bend, I am a big you know believer in they're going to swing better that day, but I, ha- I haven't taught mechanics. The less that I can teach mechanics, the less judgment they feel. I think that the individual setting, you know, we've all, I mean, as hitters, I think, I mean, I have to get on guys too. Like we're not doing that in the outfield as the outfield coach. Like we're not going to do our mechanics. We've all seen that guy. Right. So, but that's the point of these guys want to hit a lot. So can they go in the mirror at their houses? Or, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I would, you know, just visualize. And I kind of preach that when you're on your own, I need you building yourself up like crazy. Cause if we're going to actually do it right and stress you out during training, then we've got to rehab as well. We've got to make sure we're rehabilitating mentally, physically, we're getting right so that every day we show up, we haven't been beaten down too much by our training. And that's one thing that, you know, we mentioned confidence, breeding confidence and, you know, being process driven. But at the same time, if we're not intentional about taking that time and for the student athlete, that's, I mean, that's just making sure their headspace is right, man. Like, how are you doing? A lot of times like, oh, I'm swinging it good. Or I'm like, no, no, no. Like, how are you do like the person, not the player? Um, because too many times, you know, and once again, I think that there's probably some, you know, quantifying of guys, but I had a roommate in pro ball who is, you know, pretty well-known big leaguer and he was getting shipped up and down every couple of days and flying across the country and he wasn't hitting. And then he's hitting in the postseason, and guys are like, man, he's so clutch. And I'm like, he's always been clutch, but when he's not sleeping and he's moving his family, you know, he's not as clutch. So the emotional side of the game, I think is, uh, and I guess shout out Charlie Colberson for that one too, because he, uh, he deserves all the credit in the world, but, but it was like the emotional side is important. And if we can't get the, the health right off the field or even on the field, but just like you have that young hitter that just keeps beating himself down because maybe you got on him about chasing a pitch or not putting a bunt down or stealing a base when he shouldn't have, we need to make sure that that guy's building himself back up when he goes home at night. Cause I found most of these guys, they want to be almost too good. And so I think it's very a uh, big balance, but you have to make sure that, you know, you're kind of proactively checking in with guys um, to make sure that they're using the coaching and we can create a great training environment. But if guys are beating themselves up too much because the stress you put on them, then you're really going to have diminishing returns. Well, I think that most of the coaches listening, and I know myself included, we could all be better communicators. And it sounds like that's, that's something that you're trying really hard to do well. So what's your advice on someone who is like, James, I, I want to be a better communicator. Uh, what are some different ways that you do that? I, I love the just the daily check-in. That's fantastic. But are, is there anything that, you're, that you have like a checklist of guys that you're trying to check in with? Is it more intimate of just how you feel or just how, how do you walk us through how you, how you better communicate with your players? Yeah, I think practice, like anything, right? Practice makes you uh, improve. It's not going to make you perfect, but it, it definitely helps you get better. So the more that I can just take time intentionally out of my day about being interrupted, and that may sound crazy because we're all, a lot of times we're wanting to get better. I want to budget my day. I want to have a strict schedule. But for me, and this is off the field, this is on the field, this is in life, this is in you know interpersonal relationships. It's like, how many times do you get interrupted by a player during a drill or in the lunchroom? If just by not putting headphones in or by just saying hello to someone that may be serving you that you could maybe serve later on. I mean, how many times is like, man, that's the moment I had a hitting coach, man, I was in a slump or, or I was hitting really good. And they hit me with something just by being available versus we've all been there with, Hey man, you know, not today. I've got this or I've got that. And now obviously you can't just get hijacked every time that, that, that a player wants you to, but I think that it is important to be intentional about being interrupted. I think that so many meaningful conversations come out of that. And that's the real time when like, when it's not planned out, you're authentic or you're not. And I think that, you know, I think we can try to do all this self-help and leadership and all that stuff. But when it comes down to it, what are we like when it's the least convenient time, you know, whether it's family at home and, and my wife's the biggest asset to me in this of just making sure that, that we do stay grounded of the reason why you get into coaching. And it's not always the easiest, but it's like, you got to lock into the players and be ready to be intentional. Sometimes they text you at 1030 on a road trip and they're just like, 
I'm struggling with this, whether it's girlfriend broke up or grades or family or real stuff, man, losing friends or whatever it is that, um, you know, if we can be there in those moments, I've found that that guy will get hit by a pitch or he's going to stick his nose in there to make sure the ball doesn't go into the outfield um, when those times come um, because you because you've let yourself be interrupted. Fantastic. Uh, I love that. I love the intentionality behind it, but also just being available. I think that, that that's something that we usually are up at the field and just making sure that we're not sitting in the office doing nothing or just chatting with other coaches and, and just walking around and asking them all of that stuff. I know that's stuff that's helped me and that's something that, that I need to be even more intentional about for sure. But on a completely separate note, we were talking about practice design earlier and then we got uh, in, into the mental stuff, which is fan- which is great. Uh, but what are your what does your BP setup look like? And uh, let's say that we're going through BP this week. Uh, take us through it. Yeah, so it does vary a lot, and that's the one thing that I know variability is great. And sometimes for me, just the way that my brain works, it it changes up unintentionally. It just happens of you know you know what this day we were going to do this, um, and it's not necessarily coaching being reactive versus proactive. But I do think there's times where like you know what I feel like we have guys that are going through the first round, maybe taking it for themselves. Maybe that's when I do the situational round. And then I let them have, you know, kind of a round on their own to elevate pull side for some groups or it stay through the middle for other groups. Um, so many times too, I mean, in hitting, there's so many situations that you need infield in one out, you got to elevate. No, you don't, you need to hit a line drive, right? So the more I can show guys that, that bases loaded with two outs and TD Ameritrade is, one millisecond off of an OO count in a scrimmage where there's no one here on a backfield. Um, the more that you can kind of bring those to what plays plays and what doesn't doesn't. And if they can be present to just being and putting a good swing on a good pitch and being on time, if you're on time and you got a good pitch to hit and your, your, you know, mental was clear. I mean, you're going to get really good results. It's kind of simple as that. All the other stuff, I do believe if you can keep the the biggest things, uh, the biggest things, all that other stuff with path and posture and, and all that, like all that stuff kind of pl- flattens out when guys are feeling good and they trust that they've worked hard enough in practice. And now it's time to just enjoy competition. I love it. Well, let's go through some quick hitters and to get to, get to know you a little bit better, get to know what you're learning and, and some stuff that we can steal from you. But what is something that you've learned lately that's gotten you really excited? I think the activation part is really digging in on, um, you know, I don't biomechanics. I'm no expert, but I know guys that are good and I have guys that I can go to to ask questions, but making sure that hitters have done proper activation before they've gotten to the cage. I always had, you know, throw a med ball or do different stuff, but it's like, man, if this guy doesn't hinge correctly with med ball throws, that's the last thing you want him doing before he goes up and hits, you know, and just really digging into some more concepts like short and long bat over under speed training just refining it. We've always kind of done some of it, but just making sure that can we do it less often and be more effective? I think that's something that's always uh, always very helpful. Okay. Next question. I love it, by the way. Uh, changes that you're making from last year to this year? Man, I think it's you always want to be more trusting with players year in and year out. Um, I think it's something that you also want to push. Like I kind of mentioned, obviously I'm on a recency bias with this young team, but it's trying just to make sure that the less we have to make in-game changes, the better. The more that we can get their instincts on par, that's the one thing that I've found. Um, but I think we're also, with our analytics team, we're trying to make sure that, you know, on a similar wavelength, like, hey, if we're going to look at two factors and it's going to be controlling the zone, how can we get a guy that may not control the zone instead of just saying, no, he's always going to be like that? I think, can we figure out how to get through to him maybe in a different way to get him to take steps forward? Awesome. What is something that you do in training that your players love? So let's say that you showed up tomorrow and uh, take, for instance, hey, we're picking teams, we're scrimmaging. That would be something that they would love. But what's something that, that, again, if you showed up tomorrow and you're like, hey, guys, we're doing this today, they just would erupt with excitement. What would that be? They're, they're going to tell you I like this just as much as them, but it's like, you know, the old fungo game on a Thursday before a Friday series where I'm just blasting balls, um, whether I'm trying to go deep just because I'm trying to reminisce about playing days or I'm you know, making sure that it's it's the diving catches. That's one thing that we've done is taken the uh, incredibles, like the balls that are just a little bit softer and tightening up gaps and windows and, 
and kind of going playground style, just diving catches. That was one of my favorite games growing up. And I believe that's one of the ones that I would sit and do for hours and I would switch positions. Like I'll say, Hey, we do have bases loaded here. Diving catch is different than if there's nobody on, you got to react a little differently. And so I do think that they just like making it to where it's, it's playground style, gamifying the experience. Love it. What is something that you believe that other coaches either disagree with you about or that you have nice discussions about? Yeah, I think two quick things come to mind. One is what we mentioned earlier. There's so much good information out there that I don't think sometimes guys take the depth. So if they use a term or they use a drill, like a constraint-led approach, I read an article or maybe it was a podcast. It was something. That's always my go-to. It's either an article or a podcast, right? Like the, the constraints-led approach a lot of time is, is implemented the wrong way. And so that's like my biggest fear is that we implement something and call it a constraint-led approach when it's not a constraint-led approach. Um, the other thing I think is making sure that this new school, old school hitting Twitter, like kind of bickering, I feel like, you know, if we can communicate the right way, you know, it's like anything else. It's, uh, you know, I mentioned the spiritual piece too. Like no one wants someone that follows all the rules and waves their finger and says, I'm right, you're wrong. I think people want to be loved and cared about. And I think that that there's so much we're missing because somebody's saying that data doesn't matter. And, and the other guy's saying, well, it does matter. You use data in all these other areas of your life. And I'm like, well, they're not going to like being told they're wrong. Um, but I do think that people think those waves are, are farther apart. And because I have had the Mike Martin old school approach of, you know, vertical bad angle discussions, then I've talked with Jeff Albert and, you know, some of these guys that are just in Jason Ochoa, like that are so far down of, they got great practice habits and it's all data driven. I feel like these sides, I believe are, are, we can get these two to come together. So that's kind of a, been something that I think that some coaches think it's kind of, it's a, it's a wave. And I'm like, man, I just, I hope the game stays where it is. And I hope that we all learn to better kind of exist in the ecosphere that's hitting development. I love that. I can go behind that for sure. So if we came and watched you coach tomorrow, like that, let's say that our entire audience came and watched you and followed you around for a day. What do you think that we would notice about you or, or what, what do you think that you either are very intentional about, or you may do different or that your players have said, Hey coach, you're really good at this. And, uh, what would a couple of those things be? Coach Hall probably tell you, you want to bring your Fitbit or your Apple watch and turn it on. Cause you're going to be moving a lot. Um, you're going to be <laughs> jumping up and down or, you know, encouraging, you're going to be clapping. You're going to be loud. There's going to be music on. I think those are the things, but I do think that you, you probably see that, you know, that interruption piece too, sometimes and to a fault, man, like I'm going to take and love on a player and, and get the best out of them. Sometimes maybe at the expense of going slow in practice before we speed it up. But I do think that you're going to see from the get-go, up-tempo, uh, very engaged, and just because I love it. I mean, that's the one thing I try to make sure is I have to dial back sometimes. Like, I'm fired up to go to the field in an hour and just get it going again today, um, even though these are some of the dog days. All right, and final question. This is pretty typical, but uh, it's something that we're all striving to learn better information. Or you mentioned we want to get to know or get information that's better and, and understand it with a decent depth of knowledge. but what are some of your favorite books, resources, articles, podcasts that uh, have shaped you? Yeah, I listen to um, Michael, Michael Gervais' podcast, which is great. I listen to this one. I listen to several other baseball podcasts. You know, books, I like to kind of go a chapter at a time, have whether it's, you know, off the field, on the field. So, like, I kind of get the corporate culture side. Like, I'm just always trying to recycle stuff. Um, I think that following people on social medias social networks is like some of the best or worst thing you could do, whether it's filling your timeline with positivity, negativity. You know, I love piggybacking on, Hey man, this guy's got a really good thought on this and, you know, vice versa. Sometimes the best things I've done is unfollowed stuff that, you know, maybe as a recruiting guy, I want to be seeing, but I'm like, it's just flooding my timeline with, with too much to where, um, I'm not getting that gold. I love it. And finally, if any of our listeners want to get in touch with you, just about maybe anything that you talked about today or just to touch base uh, and, and get to know you a little bit better, is there a place online that we can find you? Yeah. So Twitter and Instagram, James Ramsey 23 email, you know, I'm usually pretty available. Uh, I always do like connecting because the one thing that I've found is you got guys that'll reach out to you and never want to big league somebody because those are the guys that end up, I mean, creating the next 
amazing platform to get hitters better or whatever it is. I think that, you know, wanting to coach and wanting to be tunnel vision about it, but no, I always am welcome to, to hear. And if there's anything I can do, I mean, that's like I said, I always, I'm like, there's no way that anyone would want to learn from a guy that's, you know, a year and a half in. Um, but I think there's ways of just freshness and having been with so many different coaches like I have in a short time, there's always kind of good information out there. Fantastic. And I'm going to open up the mic for you. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? I think just keep learning, keep pouring in and and always ask the question. I think that's, you know, there's so many coaches that have done this for me that whether I, they recruited me or I competed against them, their husbands, their fathers, they're great guys. And the more that we can always have that mindset of, man, this guy's a fierce competitor and and not everybody's going to like this person on game day, but so many of us have so much more in common. We kind of take off the logos on the chest and, and all that and just take it down to a very basic level of we love the game. We want to learn. I mean, I think that there'd be a lot more opportunity for guys that are in competing dugouts to have a little more respect because if we all sat down and didn't know where each other's were coaching, I think there's a lot of guys that would speak negatively about someone or not like somebody that there's an opportunity to, to kind of grow and learn from each other. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. You can subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, which can include Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or YouTube. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it on social media to help get the word out. Once again, thank you for joining us.